Okay, we're recording. <laughs> Welcome to Leave It Be, the show where we do anything but. Today we'll be examining Bernie Sanders' rise and the so-called political revolution that he's leading. But first, we're going to take a look at why a country founded on revolution that is so keen on assisting revolutions around the world would be so scared of one happening on its own shores. All that and more. Stay tuned. So in 1776, the Founding Fathers write and sign the Declaration of Independence, creating a clear distinction that the former 13 colonies of England are now one self-governing body, free to make its own decisions and laws. Never before had a colony successfully spit in the eye of its father nation and lived to tell the tale. America would be the first. But what exactly pissed off the colonists so much that they would be willing to risk their otherwise good relationship with the most powerful empire in the world? Did the English really tread on them so much as to warrant a flag about it? And what about that tea in the Boston Harbor? Was it an act of pure punk patriotism sticking it to the man, or was it opportunistic entrepreneurs looking to corner a market? History books tend to be much more black and white than the real events, so let's start with where the real tension begins between the US and England, and the events where all our heroes make a name for themselves, the Seven Years' War. Now, I'm not going to bore you with a load of details or mention every name of minor relevance. Instead, let me give you a rundown of the conflict. The Seven Years' War started in 1756 over a dispute between the English and French over some key territories in North America, mainly Ohio. What starts as skirmishes leads to what can only be described as the First World War. Truly, this thing took place on five separate continents and involved literally every major power of the time many of them making allies with local forces like the French and the many Native American tribes. That's where it gets its other name, the French and Indian War. When it ended in 1763, it had cost the Brits so much that their national debt rose to over 122 million pounds, the interest on which was nearly 4.5 million pounds a year, and they won the bloody war. After doing some quick math, that 4.5 million pounds a year rounds out to about 90 billion pounds in today's money, so fair to say they were hurting. Oh, and I almost forgot to mention this Virginia farmer who trained as an officer in the local militia. He served under a British general named Braddock and helped win some key victories for the British. His name was George Washington, and pretty soon everyone would know his name, but more on that later. Now, if you were an American colonist, you might be thinking there were some rewards coming your way. After all, you did just help win this war, and now that there's no French in the way, you can go steal their fur trade and make all that money, right? Wrong. The Brits need to pay for this war, and nowhere is more profitable than these expansive colonies. So rather than play the long game and incur more debt to build up the colonies, creating a super producer of the world, the British are a little more short-sighted and tax the shit out of the colonists. Now, it started with the Currency Act, which banned paper money in the colonies and only recognized the British sterling pound. This may not seem like a big deal, but it made the colonists feel like second-rate citizens to the British. So all of a sudden, their money has no value in the eyes of the British. Then came the stamp tax, which was so unpopular it led to a boycott of British goods and forced the Brits to repeal it on plain economic grounds within a year. Which leads us to the infamous Tea Act. It sounds simple enough, right? Slap a tax on all tea coming into the colonies other than the British-owned East India Trading Company tea. Colonists could still buy competitors' tea, but they'd have to pay a tax on the sale to the British anyways. 
The goal of this was really more to put the rapidly growing smuggling industry out of business. Who would be mad about this? Well, the smugglers, for one, and all their clients, which at this point was pretty much everyone, because the British taxed them so much on everything else, and their paper money was no good. So in order to get things for cheaper when money was tight, everyone was turning to smugglers. This is where things get murky, because the history books describe these patriotic, disgruntled citizens known as the Sons of Liberty, who are so fed up with British taxation that they throw the very symbol of British influence into the Boston Harbor. If you're a listener of revisionist history, you may have heard Malcolm Gladwell explain that these guys may have been no more than a group of drunken smugglers whose very way of life was being threatened by these taxes. So they dressed up as a group the Brits already hated, the natives, and dumped all their tea into the harbor as a big fat fuck you, all the while making their product the only one on the block for anyone to purchase. Now, I should mention that all this talk of quote-unquote British tea is really all coming from China, just distributed and sold at a profit by the British, but that's a subject for another day. Bottom line, in 1773, 342 chests of British-owned tea find themselves at the bottom of the Boston Harbor. The fallout of what came to be known as the Boston Tea Party is nothing short of a literal revolution. There were some well-to-do colonists who were apologetic and even offered to pay for the lost goods in an attempt to salvage their relationship with the Brits. However, the loudest voices on both sides of the aisle were not chanting about apologies. They wanted blood. And remember, Boston was already a hotbed of issues for both the colonists and the British Parliament. Not three years prior, a bunch of British soldiers gunned down protesters in the streets. So after a couple years of back and forth, the first shots of the revolution are finally fired on April 18, 1775. And here's where our boy George comes back into play. Not only was George Washington a natural leader, he had also fought under British command and knew pretty much everything about them. Being an insider and key figure in the fight for independence would land him a seat in the White House, where he would establish some important rules ensuring that the president was less of a monarch and more of a leader of the people's will. I'm going to skip over the details of the revolution because I'm sure you've heard it all before, and all that you really need to know is that against all odds, the American colonists win their independence and create a new republic where everyone, read every white man, has equal rights and opportunity to buy into this system called capitalism, where all that mattered was that you put in your work so that you could pay your taxes so the government could protect those rights they promised you. It's a system that pays itself off so long as everyone plays along. Now, the Founding Fathers didn't know it at the time, but in closing out this Revolutionary War, they started a whole new one. One that rages on today, and that is merely keeping the Republic alive. In 1906, the notes of Maryland delegate to the Constitutional Convention, James McHenry, were published, and the famous quote of Benjamin Franklin popularized. The quote reads, A lady asks Dr. Franklin, Well, Doctor, what have we got, a Republic or a Monarchy? A Republic, replied the Doctor, if you can keep it. Now opinions vary on the behavior of the colonists. Some might say they were dissident radicals who were damaging the status quo and making everything more complicated for everyone else. Others might call them patriotic heroes who showed there was another solution to governance and set a standard as to what being a citizen really meant. No matter where you fall on that spectrum, it's hard to deny the influence of America's little revolt. France, Latin America, and Spain would all experience revolutions with similar demands and results. In large part, America supported these revolutions. That is, until this German dude wrote a pamphlet called The Communist Manifesto. Good old Karl Marx. 
Now, I'm going to take a moment to clarify what communism is exactly, because in America it tends to be associated with socialism as if the terms are interchangeable, but that simply is not true. Communism, at its core, requires a violent overthrow of the powers that be, to then install a government for the people, led by the people, in which all the people are equal and those who disagree have been eliminated. Truly, this is a key tenet of communism. In Marx's own words, the communists disdain to conceal their views and aims. They openly declare that their ends can be attained only by forcible overthrow of all existing social constructs. Let the ruling classes tremble at a communistic revolution. The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. <laughs> I mean, if the statement forcible overthrow of all existing social constructs doesn't strike you as violent revolutionary terms, then I don't know what will. However, socialism is not that. Socialism was the system of government promised to the people in the communist idea, and that's really all it was until this trio of bros with facial hair changed their names and lead the working people of Russia in a revolution. Now, by this time, Marx was already long dead, and this vision of a perfect communist utopia was never Russia. In fact, Marx himself thought the ideal country for this kind of revolution was actually England or America. Countries where there were people so wealthy that the separation of class was easily visible. Now, this existed in Russia as well, but in America and England, the wealthy lived outside the cities in beautiful mansions with servants and running water. And the people who worked for them, who truly made the money that sustained such a lifestyle, lived in abject poverty in tightly compacted cities where they dumped buckets of shit out the window in the streets. Now, Marx believed that these people in those living conditions would be the ones to take up arms and lead a bloody revolution, but Marx was wrong about this and many other things. But what he failed to see is that despite these crap conditions in the cities, people who had the minor freedom of earning money and living their own lives weren't about to risk that on the chance that they could get a bigger slice of the pie, especially if that meant murdering everyone with more wealth than you. What a communist revolution takes to be successful is pure desperation, and that Russia had in abundance. A little bit of context here. It's the early 20th century, and Russia at the time was a monarchy, plain and simple. There was a ruling family called the Romanovs, and what the Tsar, or their king, said was law. It didn't help that the Tsar at the time, Nicholas II, was, dare I say, incompetent? He really wanted to be respected, and part of that respect meant that he fancied himself a great leader. So when World War I breaks out, he sends his armies against the forces of Prussia to defend his title, his land, and most of all, his pride. All of which will crumble, mainly because 1.7 million Russians would die in the process. Not to mention the fact that going to war involves taking the men, the horses, and most importantly, the food from the farms of the Russian countryside. So in 1915, when the Tsar himself comes to the front to lead his army, the Russian people are already pretty fed up. And within two years, supplies have run out and the people have begun looting Petrograd or modern-day St. Petersburg. Now, Nicholas wasn't too worried at this point because he had already put down a revolution once in 1905, but this was different. Not only had the country been at war and hemorrhaging supplies, but his wife's German heritage really wasn't helping build a case for nationalism. And those dudes that I mentioned before who changed their names to things like Lenin, Trotsky, and Stalin, well, they were doing all they could to scare the people into believing that the Tsar didn't care if the average Russian citizen lived or died. And the proof was the war that he forced them into. 
But that was actually an advantage to the people. You see, this illustrated the Marxist theory that the proletariat class was only allowed to exist because it would be capable of carrying out the bourgeois' agenda. No longer would the actions of the proletariat benefit the bourgeois, though, because now they had the fighting skill and the guns to fight those people in power. And remember how 1.7 million people had already died? Well, Russia's population was estimated to be about 91 million people in 1917. So there's a lot more hungry people than there are dead, which leaves room for more people to die, which was exactly what Lenin was calling for. In 1918, he wrote to a comrade, Hang, and I mean hang so people can see no less than a hundred kulaks, rich men, bloodsuckers. Do this so that for hundreds of miles around, the people can see, tremble, and know and cry. They are killing and will go on killing the blood-sucking kulaks. Yours, Lenin. P.S. Find tougher people. <laughs> I mean, I love how blunt Russians are. So with everything as bleak as it seemed, the rhetoric from Lenin and food shortages, you can understand why the people of Russia would take a truly radical stance and go on a murder campaign, resulting in Tsar Nicholas stepping down and abdicating his power to a provisional government, which was first recognized by who, you might ask? Well, none other than the U.S. of A. Think on that for a second. What happened later, I'm sure you know. The whole Romanov family was gunned down in a basement, putting an end to the monarchy in Russia and ushering in an era of communist-based socialism. And again, a clear distinction here from democratic socialism. This kind of government operation was forced onto the people after violent bloodshed. I, for one, believe no matter what system of government is put in place, none would stand the test of time in an environment like that. And this is where we're going to leave Russia and fast forward to today, because... This is the picture of socialism that the opposition to socialism in America likes to paint. The one where only through bloodshed and a hail of bullets can people be called equal, and one in which our government was the first to recognize. So let's bring it back around to today. It's 2020, I'm trapped in my apartment under self-quarantine because there's a pandemic virus going around because of incompetency from the top down. We're hours away from a debate between an old white dude who wants to take things back to the way things were and an old white dude who believes that there are other ways to do things. Bernie Sanders has been called a lot of things, but one title he bears willingly is Democratic Socialist. And pundits everywhere are calling him a revolutionary because he takes the statement, all men are created equal to mean that all people should have health care and a living wage. Sanders' choice of calling himself a democratic socialist is purposefully distancing himself from the communistic vision of socialism that Fox News would like you to think is the only kind of socialism. But to call Sanders a revolutionary? I mean, come on, this is America. We fought a war with ourselves over the right to own other people. Now, that's extreme. That's radical. But Sanders? He's following through on what one of the most beloved American presidents started, and that's FDR's New Deal. At the time that FDR was president, the country was bankrupt, morally and monetarily. The people needed something to show them that their president was listening and understood their struggles, and that their government would be able to provide them with the assurance that the taxes they paid actually made some improvements in their lives. Enter Social Security. It has socialism in the name. And it continues to be the one thing that you hear older people say they want to keep. Oh, don't take my entitlements or I won't vote for you. Well, this is exactly those entitlements. The very thing people fear being taken away is the standalone idol of socialism in America. And it didn't take bloodshed to get it either. It 
did take the worst economic downturn the U.S. had ever seen. But, I mean, that's not far off from what we might be headed toward today. The markets may be in utter free fall, especially if this coronavirus situation gets worse, which it inevitably will. I mean, I can't think of a better example for why we should have universal health care than a pandemic. And I can't think of a better reason to get people angry and fired up. If you really think what Bernie Sanders represents is true revolution, then this corona pandemic may be a lit match to gasoline. Imagine for a moment what America would look like if only for a few more weeks, nothing changes. People are told to stay home from work, but also told to check themselves into a hospital if they're sick a luxury that many people can't even afford. People are already buying up toilet paper and leaving stores empty. How long can this go on without people going to extremes? But this is 2020, not 1776 and not 1917. We haven't seen a real revolution in America in a long time, but we're poised for one now. I mean, on top of this pandemic, the wealth gap in this country is enormous. People go to jail simply because they can't pay their medical bills. Rent is through the roof, and it seems more and more like the people we've elected are only in it for themselves. All these factors are the same things that push people of the past to revolt. So this is our chance at revolution, but a revolution the democratic socialist way. Before you start calling for bloodshed and senators' heads on pikes, I'll remind you why Sanders is in this race. His family fled to America to escape the persecution of the Nazis. They worked to become citizens and build themselves a better life here in the greatest country on earth. And I still believe that's true. This is the greatest country on earth, and I believe that being a citizen of it means questioning the status quo, not blindly going along with it. There's a reason the Declaration of Independence says all men are created equal, and the most recent political revolution in this country was fought in the 60s to make that statement include everyone. And while that fight still goes on, we should look to a leader who was there for that revolution and has been carrying that banner ever since, and that's Sanders. Like it or not, Sanders represents the American dream. He came from nothing and worked his way here. He's noticed the problems in this country and has real solutions to fix them. He may be called radical, but that's only because his plans are so contradictory to the politics of late. So, in conclusion, Sanders is not leading a revolution. Not yet, at least. But if we keep going the way we're headed, a revolution may be inevitable. Personally, I would stake my bet on the guy who has been consistent in his political career and wants to see a brighter future for America. If that's revolutionary, then so be it. I'm a revolutionary, and I'll fight this revolution with my vote. That's democratic socialism. That's the future for America that I want to see. And maybe you do too. So vote wisely, but above all else, just vote. And make your voice heard. Pay attention. Watch the debates. Oh, and wash your hands. And if you made it this far, I truly appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope to have more content for you soon. <laughs>